Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 2nd, 2022. It probably should be August the 3rd because we're dealing with a kind of trilogy of books and authors today, all on a similar theme. We began this morning um, on the Baltic coast of Germany with a German scholar, Gerd uh, Gigerenza, who has a new book out, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. It's a book about self-realization for humans. And in the book and in our conversation, he talked to me about a, a key decision he made in his 20s, in his choice from being either a social scientist or a musician. He chose to be a social scientist, and that reflected what he called at least his heuristic wisdom about self-realization. Our second interview today was with Jeff Lerner. Jeff reminds us that learner in Yiddish means wise, and his new book, Unlock Your Potential, The Ultimate Guide for Creating Your Dream Life in the Modern World, is... Um, a book which attempts to give some wisdom about self-realization. As Jeff says, he's in the business. His mission is to help people unlock their full potential and design their dream life. Jeff, talk to me from Utah about 90-minute drive from Las Vegas. We are switching geographies and switching genders in terms of our uh, narrative, our August the 2nd journey of self-realization. We're going to Bermuda now to talk to uh, a woman called Christy Hunter Arscott, who has another intriguing book out called Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty, and Launch a Brilliant Career. Christy is joining us from Bermuda. Uh, she has her own brilliant career. Uh, Christy, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, Christy, I've got to ask the obvious question first. You know, Jeff's stuff's all in black, <laughs> very bold, very aggressive about unlocking their potential. Uh, your colors are much uh, softer in terms of self-realization. Your book, Begin Boldly, is specifically for women. Is there a certain kind of color for women's books and narratives of self-realization that men simply don't get? <laughs> Interesting question. I've actually had a number of men already pick up my book, so I'm not sure. Um, but one I'm, thing I'm I not saying that, and I apologize for interrupting, <laughs> a very male thing to do. I'm not saying <laughs> men can't appreciate it, but you've obviously written this book for women. Yeah, so I'll tell you, though, the color scheme, and you even highlighted my website, and as well as the book, and it's probably obvious from my background as well. And part of the story in the book um, features me and my career. And there was a time where I was born and raised in Bermuda, and I did my undergrad at Brown, then I went into the consulting world in the US, and I was in New York. Um, working in financial services consulting right around the time of the recession. And there was a period where I lost myself um, from a, a perspective of kind of my roots and what was important to me. And I started wearing all black and tying my hair back and doing all of these things that were conforming and not bold at all. 
And for me, being bold is being your authentic self. And that is that everything from my book cover to my website now truly feels like it represents who I am as a person and my legacy and my story, as well as hopefully being appealing to others. It's quite a story, uh, Christy. Uh, of course, uh, everyone's familiar, or most people should be familiar at least, with the Australian movie My Brilliant Career. Wonderful film. You've had your own brilliant career. Tell us a little bit about it. You mentioned you'd been an undergrad at Brown. You're also a, a Rhodes Scholar, clearly an enormously successful academic. Um, it's been a journey. I think everyone's career has its ups and downs and peaks and valleys, and mine's been no different. Um, but it's been one, amazing. Like I've had an interest in women, gender inclusion issues for as long as I can remember. And I think it started as early as 11 for me. And then I left Bermuda to go to Brown and I did a lot of work on gender and sexuality and leadership and policy and human rights. And it continued to remain really in this forefront. Um, and then when I went to Oxford, it was interesting because at the time I got the Rhodes Scholarship, um, most people were still thinking in the traditional mindset that people went on the Rhodes Scholarship to do law or medicine. And there was this article that came out about me at the time that said something like, while well, most Rhodes Scholars go and do this and this, she's doing women's studies. And I was the second Rhodes Scholar ever to pursue that route. And a lot of people at the time questioned that and what was I going to do with that and why am I focusing in this? Um, but it, the journey has been amazing, really staying true to that interest. And I did a second master's in comparative social policy, looking at the impact of family friendly employment policies on women's engagement in the workforce. And then I came kind of back and I went to Deloitte Consulting um, uh, in the US and I was doing work in human capital consulting around people and performance, but helping at the time, it was really a great opportunity to drive their DNI service offering. Um, diversity and inclusion, developing tools, doing research. And I left there about nine years ago, um, launched my own uh, business. And I have a mix of speaking and writing and lectures and strategic advisory work with companies that are trying to be more inclusive and build more vibrant and dynamic um, uh, environments and cultures and coaching. And then now a book. So uh, you're actually catching me on my launch day, which is a uh, a very monumental time. And congratulations on that. It's very tough to write a book. It shows uh, a lot of in endurance. Um, yeah. We did a show last year with Susan McKenty Brady, um, another management theorist, I guess. She has a book called Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. It's a little different from yours, which is about women reimagining risk. But um, is there something specific about females in the workplace and imagining risk that men simply don't get, can't understand? Is it a, a genetic, a biological thing, or is it a consequence of the, the architecture, the sexist architecture of corporations and business life? So there's been a lot of studies on both sides on, you know, what is nature versus nurture for years. Um, but what I do know for sure is that society conditions us often to be fearful of risk. And that can be, first of all, anyone, because we think about risk in negative terms, how to mitigate, manage rather than, you know, how to seek it out. But for women, it's particularly hard. And 
That's why although the frameworks in this book could be beneficial to anyone, they're specifically calibrated for women because the difference is women are more likely to face backlash for taking risks. So it's not enough just to go out and say, be bold and be brave and you know, do all of these things as if there's gonna be no consequences. The reality in gender research is there are consequences. And so we need tools that almost have gender intelligent design to help us take risks in really smart ways. Yeah, it's a really important point. I had Claudia Golden on the show last year, very influential female economist, uh, new book, Career and Family, Women's Century Long Journey Towards Equity. It hasn't arrived yet. Um, tell me a little bit, um, uh, tell me a little bit, uh, Christy, about what it feels like to be uh, a woman in a world where a lot of the, the assumptions are male and perhaps patronizing or simply don't get the reality of your situation. It's, it's uh, that's such a complex question. I feel like I could talk about it um, for hours. But... Well, we have all day, Christy, so. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> um, so listen, I think it's hard because we all have biases, right? Biases are just cognitive shortcuts and how we process information. You know, all of the studies say we get something like 11 million bits of information every moment and we can process 40. So we'll quickly jump to conclusions. And yet I work with a lot of people where they think um, initially when we introduce this concept that it's bad or they're bad, but it's actually just a reality. And if you're in a minority position in a workplace or in an environment that was designed for another group, you're naturally going to be subject to that more. And whether that means if you negotiate your salary, you're going to more likely to have an offer rescinded or you're less likely to have a mentor or sponsor in your organization and perhaps kind of fall through the cracks of networks, or you're, you're less likely to potentially see role models like you at the upper echelons of these organizations. And studies show aspiration is directly linked to visibility. So your aspiration and confidence for those roles declines year two on the job. Like these are the kind of things that impact women um, in such interesting ways. And sometimes what I see people do is dismiss the issues because if it's not over sexism or racism or harassment, we're like, okay, well, these little things, you know, they, they don't really build up. But what they're like is like a pin doll and tiny pins over time that eventually cause women to, I think, have less than brilliant careers. And I want to help women navigate that in a way that is also exciting and put some ownership in it as well. Did a show last year with Annie Auerbach, a British writer, on uh, the urgency of work-life balance. Do you think that this balance or lack of balance, imbalance perhaps, is a particular problem for women? I think it's a problem for women. I think it's a problem for a lot of people. And I think it's a problem for um, individuals who are childless as well. Um, when I talk about this, I don't talk about work-life intentions in relation to um, just one group because the studies have shown that younger generations are facing burnout. They're facing high levels of stress in, in ways that, you know, older generations are too. However, I think that there are, again, are nuances around this. What I would say is I don't like the term work-life balance because I think it sets us up for failure. 
So balance is an elusive ideal at best in my mind. It is like, you're going to have these two sides of a scale. It's never going to be balanced. And increasingly the lines between, you know, work and life are blurred. Work is a part of life. So I think this kind of attention we're talking about is not in the right model. And I think we need to have new terms so we can come up with new solutions because I think the work-life balance term is outdated. Well, perhaps you might give us some of these terms. What, what, what would you think would be more useful than work-life balance? So I've seen a lot of like progression over the years since I first started working in this space and people said work and family. And there were all these centers that were started for work and family. And I wanted to share, I, I, I don't love that either. And that's because then we almost um, reserve issues of conflict and burnout and tension to those that have families. And I wrote an article years ago about flexibility, irrespective of marital or parental status, because I'm like, it shouldn't always be the childless individual that's working late or the single individual. So it's not work family. Um, the term that the the way I frame this, and I talk about it in my book, is talking about optimization. And I talk about how you optimize your time and energy. And I ask people to imagine it like we have a wallet with a limited number of our time dollars. So we'll have 24, let's say. And the choice we have is where we invest those dollars. And to optimize our investments, we want to invest them in the places that have the greatest return. So if you're investing in, let's say, an activity within your workplace that doesn't matter to leadership or your manager, then that is going to cause more conflict, tension, burnout, lack of work life for whatever term you want to use. Um, but and the same at home, like I've seen women and men being like, I feel stretched. I'm running home to be with my partner every night, getting back online, multitasking. Da, 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 da. And I've said, have you ever asked your partner or your kids what's really important to them? And what we often do is we invest our time dollars in things that cause zero return, probably negative because they don't matter. So someone wakes up and gets a performance review that's really poor. And they're like, but I've been working 15 hour days. But I'm like, but against whose priorities? Did you ever ask your manager what mattered? And the same at home. Have you ever asked your partner, your kids, those that are important in your life, what matters to you? The minute you understand that and use curiosity to do that, you can invest your time dollars and optimize your time and energy and reduce feelings of conflict and increase opportunity of risk. And I just wanted to credit who some of these ideas. I mean, Stu Friedman, who's um, a professor out of Wharton, um, is the one that originated with some of these ideas. And I've built on them over the years. And they're so powerful when you think about time in that way. Yeah, it's interesting. We did a show with three uh, female academics who done studies suggesting that women are much more likely to take up the busy work, which derails yes. their careers. So for you, boldness is the ability to say no, isn't it? That as well. I mean, I think it's what you say yes to, but also what you say no to. And um, one thing is, and you're right. I, so there's also, and it's work at home and work um, in the workplace. So years ago, um, Adam Grant and Sheryl Sandberg, I don't know how far back I'm going, but they did a series of four articles in the New York Times. And one I think was titled something like, Madam CEO, please go get my coffee. 
And it was talking about the allocation of office housework that actually detracts from women's success and building this brilliant career I'm talking about. And so I actually talk around some of the ways we can do to interrupt that and what leaders can do within their organizations to interrupt those tendencies. At home, similar, like some of these tools I'm talking about, they don't just apply in the workplace. If you learn how to persuasively communicate or negotiate or talk about priorities, you've got to apply those work or career skills to your home front. And uh, Eve Rodsky, Reese Witherspoon's Sunshine Company, and um, uh, Jennifer Siebel Newsom just came out with this documentary um, titled, um, it's all around fair play, which is like giving new ways that we can negotiate tasks at home. And it's really been fascinating to see the conversation move in that way. Christy, it's interesting that you raised Sheryl Sandberg. I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. Sheryl just announced, of course, that she's leaving Facebook. A lot of people argue, and I think there's some truth in this, that Sheryl gets a very bad press that if she was male, Firstly, she probably wouldn't have been forced out of Facebook. She'd probably be running it. Uh, and secondly, she gets a bad press for being bold. Do you think there's some truth to that? Why there are so few female leaders in Silicon Valley and why someone even with the clear accomplishments and leadership skills of somebody like Sheryl Sandberg still is not the CEO of a large uh, tech or tech company or bank or other organization? Yeah, I mean, again, um, it's there's so many multiple factors to this, and I'm just going to share some initial thoughts. But one is there's been a lot of talking about, you know, um, San Francisco and the Bay Area. Um, there's an amazing center for gender research out of Stanford, um, the Clayman Institute for Gender Research, and they've done a lot of work around the language of leadership. And we talk about leaders generally in male terms. And then when, and women are more likely, which is we call agentic language. And women are more likely to talk about themselves in communal terms. And other men and women are more likely to talk about women in communal terms. And therefore there's this tension where envisioning someone as a leader because of how we describe leadership and because of how we describe women is harder. And it's really fascinating looking at how to balance that out in our job descriptions and how we talk about ourselves and how we equip. And I do some of this in my book. I talk about using powerful versus powerless language and how do we, how do we instill that? So even in our narratives about how we talk about ourselves, um, that, that's embedded. I, I don't know enough about Cheryl's case, but the other thing I will say is that we face the double bind. And anyone here that has heard anything about gender research will know about this, but you know, women, it is very, very hard to be competent and likable. You are likely going to be likable and viewed as not competent or competent and not likable. And men generally, all of the research has shown, don't face that dynamic. And so that's really hard too. And we've seen that play out in politics as well, the way women are vilified and teared apart in certain ways. And then when they cry, they're seen as weak, whereas a, you know, a man might be seen as, oh, that's so amazing, he shows that sensitivity. So there's so many biases, judgments, binds that women are facing, and I'm just hitting the type, uh, tip of the iceberg, not the type of the iceberg, um, but that's just part of the story. There's many other factors. Yeah, it's a really important point. Um, certainly played out in politics with Hillary Clinton. That's 
exactly right. And um, it's likely to play out if if there's a, a leadership struggle, if Biden decides not to run with Kamala Harris. What about the issue, um, and I, I know you talk about this in the book, Begin Boldly, um, Christy, of women focusing on their own strengths, perhaps strengths which they uniquely bring to the party. We've done a number of shows on the idea of human empathy, particularly in contrast with smart machines that obviously can't manifest empathy. One, for example, with a researcher out here, Natalie uh, Peterhoff, who has a new book out, Empathy in Action. Do you think rather than trying to emulate men and, and, and supposed male values and strengths, uh, women need to focus on their own strengths, uh, perhaps like the quality of empathy, although you may correct me, you may suggest that empathy isn't uh, a, a female strength or weakness. Again, so this is also like a really um, interesting topic in the gender field. And what I'm going to share with you right now is solely how I feel about it. There's research on both ends of the spectrum. Um, I think that there is a deep risk associated with telling women to not develop male characteristics and instead harness these innately female traits for success. And the reason why is I, I actually looked at this years ago during my thesis at Oxford was it's almost giving us a gendered style of management and saying men, men succeed this way and women succeed this way. But what I worry about that is then if I don't show up in that way, it becomes a very monolithic identity, a very exclusive identity. And if you don't show up as feminine, if you don't show up empathetically with these feminine characteristics, you're going to face backlash. And what I would love to move towards, and, and there's so many people that argue for using your unique feminine traits, and I, I understand some of those arguments, but we also have to think about the intersectionality of identities, of race, of ethnicities, of sexualities, and how we all show up in this world. And if we create this one definition of being a successful female leader looks like this, I think we squashed the ability for so many women to step up authentically and be great leaders with their own unique traits that may not fit in a little feminine box with a bow. As one particularly uh, interesting um, page on your website, when you talk about your credentials, you're wearing a woman up t-shirt looking very female. Um, are you, I mean, is, is the heart of, the philosophy and begin boldly. Do you see yourself as a feminist? You're not a radical feminist. We've had some radical feminists on the show, like Catherine Angel, for example, the British feminist who has a new book out, Daddy Issues, Love and Hate in the Time of Patriarchy. Where would you position yourself in the feminist spectrum in political ideological terms? I should ask you why you think I'm not a radical feminist. I think it's the colors. <laughs> You need black if you're going to be, or, or you need bright red. Your colors are too muted. No, I'm joking. Maybe you are. I mean, maybe I'm being... Yeah. No, I'm just pushing on you with that because I just think that radical feminists show up in this world in so many different ways and forms. And we have so many different, you know, battles we're fighting and it may look different. And 
you know, when I was at Brown, I, I took this course, Women, Our Bodies, Ourselves, and it really delved into, you know, sexuality and so many other things. And, you know, there was this period, you know, when, when feminism was defined far too, again, in this one little box. And it was like, well, if you wear lipstick, you're not a feminist, but, and if you, and if you, you know, dress a certain way, you're not. And I think, and then there's also the tension between traditional definitions of feminism and really looking at inclusive intersectional feminism, because including people that are not, you know, one race or ethnicity in this overall kind of movement. And so I believe that feminism has so many different ways of being defined. But ultimately, if you believe that human beings as that women as human beings, you know, if you believe in equity and social justice and human rights and bodily autonomy, like all of those things, then you are a feminist. And I, I just think we need to be more inclusive and intersectional in how we approach that. Do you think of yourself as part of a, a tradition of writing and thinking in these issues? Do you have particular intellectual heroes or heroines, perhaps more appropriately? Yeah, glorious Dynam. <laughs> I mean, um, to see someone that has fought her entire life um, on the on really given her life to these issues, and then you know is at her age and has seen the recent political sways that we have, but still remains positive and vigilant. Like that is so phenomenal. Um, but there's so many other ones. Like if you look at the writings of Bell Hooks, if you look at Michelle Obama and what she's done for women and girls, I think that there's so many different models of how strong women show up. And I have so many people that have influenced my trajectory. I asked, um, I asked Jeff Lerner this, so don't take this personally. Uh, I suggested to Jeff that he was selling a dream in his book, um, uh, unlock your potential that most people couldn't unlock their potential. Aren't you doing the same thing though, uh, Christy? Uh, you're selling this idea of a bolder you. You're a, you're a consultant. You're a writer. Uh, your website, you encourage people to work with Christy. Uh, how many people are going to read this book and actually become bolder, do you think? I'm not suggesting that you're taking advantage of people, but in this self-help business, uh, I don't know what the numbers are, but for the hundred people who read your book, I'm guessing whether it's your book or Jeff's book or any other self-help book, I'm guessing it's only one or two people who will actually be able to realize themselves. I feel differently. I think that every single person that reads the book will walk away with one nugget that allows them to be bolder and braver and take more chances on themselves. And the reason why I believe that so firmly is because I've read so many books and worked with so many people and been to all of these conferences where it's inspiring, but not actionable. And you read it and you say, so now what? And I come back or the women I work with come back and they're energized. And two days later, they're, they're back to the same. And the whole focus of the book, like I said it at the beginning, I'm like, this is light on anecdotes and rich in action. And each chapter has an aspiration to action exercise at the end, because what I found was like women were aspiring to take risks. They knew the value of risk. They see risk takers as more successful, but they don't know how to translate that into action. And so the whole focus was, here's a toolkit. Here's a curriculum. Go do it yourself. 
And then after each exercise, there's a risk reward, refine, repeat section to make it a ritual in your life. And you know what? Not every anecdote or framework is going to resonate with everyone, but I firmly believe that at least one nugget will come out of there that allows everyone to live a little bit more boldly. Well, as I end, uh, Christy, with a couple of those nuggets, perhaps for people watching this, uh, particularly women who want to reimagine risk and embrace uncertainty and launch their own brilliant career, what kinds of very concrete actions would you suggest? to begin, apart from, of course, buying your book, which they need to do? So one thing is, um, I think that there's been a lot of discussion to date and too much almost on confidence and wanting to raise confident girls and women be confident. And I often hear from executives when I say, what's the biggest thing women are grappling with? Well, confidence. But then I did these interviews with my research partner of the most some of the most successful C-suite leaders in the world, and they didn't show up confidently. They showed up with self-doubt, with fears. Why are you interviewing me? I'm okay if you take this out of your book. And so I thought confidence is not a prerequisite for success, and we're putting so much focus on it. So what is? And what I realized was it's courage, the most amazing women who have built these brilliant careers, they do not show up confidently every day, but they show up courageously. And when I'm working even with young girls, I'm like, if you wait to feel confident before making a bold move, you will likely be waiting forever. I have dealt with so much fear and feeling lack of confidence throughout my career in different ways. When I get up in front of a huge audience, my inner critics and self-doubt, writing this book, putting myself out there, if I waited to feel confident, I would still not be doing this. And this is really what I love to do. This is truly my life's work. So what I encourage people to do if they walk away with one concept here that'll help them take more risks is don't focus on waiting to feel confident. Be courageous in the absence of confidence. And then confidence will likely be that byproduct or output. But let's refocus the discussion on courage rather than confidence. But that's just taking one step back. Where does courage come from for the for the person, for the female perhaps watching this, who is hearing this? Sure. So okay. So maybe it's courage rather than confidence that's the prerequisite for success. But I'm not a courageous person. Someone might think, where am I going to get my courage from? Yeah. So that's why people need a method, right? So. What I'm saying in this book is I'm not telling you to go take reckless risks and every risk is a good risk and be courageous in all situations. What I, what I do give is a method. So I give an example of like, we take risks all the time in our lives, like getting in our cars a risk, but we've likely been to driving classes. We likely have a manual. We likely know the roads or have a number of an emergency contact or a backup tire or whatever it may be. And risk-taking is no different. You can't tell people to take risks without a method for assessing those risks and some tools to cultivate the mindsets that are really important to take intentional risks. And that's really the focus of the rest of the book, so you can be courageous. Well, certainly one of the nice things about the book is that I think you're probably the best-known, certainly female self-help writer in Bermuda. You have island roots. Uh, for people watching, you can see a lovely snapshot of Bermuda, Bermuda behind you, uh, Christy. What has Bermuda done for you? And what are you doing for Bermuda? Oh, gosh, I feel like Bermuda is 
formed me. Um, there have obviously been so many, you know, aspects of my life and you kind of look back and you think, you know, how were these different aspects? But I grew up in a, an amazing, small and vibrant com community, um, a community where um, there's a, a wide diversity of, you know, races and ethnicities um, in comparison to some of the schooling environments that um, I went to. And the culture, the vibrancy, um, the, it, there's something so intangible. We just got off of our national, um, our national holiday, our Emancipation Day weekend. And there's something here, I, there's an essence that I feel has really helped form some of my boldness and some of my deep, deep care about social exclusion in the broadest level um, and wanting to build more vibrant communities that are inclusive. And in terms of what I'm doing here, it's been fascinating. Um, I had the opportunity a few years ago, there, there wasn't a lot of interaction between the private and public schools in, in programs. And I had the opportunity to spearhead and develop um, a program between the private and public schools that was sponsored by HSBC here. And it was called She Leads, a real world readiness program. And the idea was, the, the application requirements, you don't need grades, you don't need top scores or references, you just have to say why you want to be part of a program, because there's so many amazing young women that don't fit in the academic box, but have so much potential that they can tap into sooner. And then the idea was what we learn in school as girls is not always the, what we need to be successful in the workplace. And that's part of the impetus for the book too. And so I developed content around like, Things like dealing with your inner critic, with limiting beliefs, with self-doubts that may present in women more than men, with um, all of these fears of networking. And so that was really the program. And now I've embedded that in the book as well. So, Well, if you can't afford a trip to Bermuda, certainly begin by reading Christy Hunter Ascot's new book, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty and Launch a Brilliant Career. She really has a brilliant career. It's, uh, I think it's, it's one more chapter in that career, Christy, which certainly isn't ending. Love to have you back on the show. Keep, uh, keep uh, uh, our eyes on, 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 on what you're doing next. Certainly an interesting story. What else are you reading, Christy, in addition to your new book, Begin Boldly? So I'm currently reading actually the book that I, it, I mentioned the documentary to you, but I'm reading Fair Play by Eve Rodsky, um, which is fascinating. So when you talk about kind of uh, balance, for lack of a better term, or sharing of roles at home, I really um, encourage people to pick that up. And then there's also another book, I sit on this board at Harvard Kennedy School, the Women's Leadership Board, and Iris Bonet, who um, uh, works within Harvard Kennedy School, wrote this book, and I, I picked it up again and again, it's called What Works. And it's all about gender design in organizations, because we can't de-bias individuals, but we can try to create checks and balances in our organizations to make them more inclusive. Do you know her? Yes, I've met her. Mm, I have to get her on this show. Yeah, she's great. Her book's uh, behind me, so... Oh, I might make my uh, bookshelf fall if I take it out, but definitely look at um, what works. Um, she's just got some fascinating research on redesigning organizations rather than focusing just on the individual.